Ready? Yeah. Hey! <laughs> we, that's part of it. Hey! Hi! My name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of Reading Aloud. It's a literary podcast on the Wolf Pop Network. You found us. Thanks for showing up. We have an amazing interview today with Dan O'Brien, who's a friend of mine. He's a playwright and a poet, a Guggenheim fellow, so back the fuck up. Uh, we talk about his uh, work as an artist and as a creative person, and he's a really compelling guy. I've known him for, jeez, uh, almost 15 years, and he's a wonderful dude. Um, so we have a great conversation with him. And then I read a very short story that I just found that I'm really excited about called Things You're Not Proud Of by Tom McAllister. But before we get to those things, first, you should go pick up. It's such an easy, fun read. It's called The Haunting of Hill House. And it's Shirley Jackson's, uh, God, I wonder when it was published. I don't have it in front of me. But it's a spooky haunted house story. I know Halloween is in the rearview mirror, but let's hold on to it. Let's not let the spirit of Halloween go. Like it wants to go. It's like, well, I'll see you next year. And you're like, no, 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 sit down. Have a seat. Have a, let's have a drink and talk. He's like, I really got to go. I gotta, I'm going on Halloween vacation. Don't let Halloween out of your lives. Invite it back. Read Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House and be a part of our book club. Every month we have a book club. And that's this uh, month's choice. The following month, we're going to do a vote. Yes, I have a bunch of choices, and I want you guys to think about which book you would want to read. And then write me in and give me your vote. Here are the choices. Are you ready? Yes. The first one, Un Under Major Domo Minor, which is Patrick DeWitt's newest book, Under Major Domo Minor. He wrote The, the Sisters Brothers uh, a couple years ago. He's awesome. Uh, that's the first choice. Second choice, M Train, which is nonfiction, which is the, uh, the Patti Smith book that just came out. M Train, she wrote um, Just Kids, which came out a couple years ago that people loved, including me. Um, that's called M Train. Uh, Fortune Smiles is the third choice, um, which is the new collection of stories by Adam Johnson. He wrote The Orphan Master's Son. Um, he won the Pulitzer Prize in fiction. Um, he's a very smart guy. He has a, a collection of short stories. It's getting tons of acclaim. It's called Fortune Smiles. That's the third choice. The fourth choice is Station Eleven. Station Eleven. I'm forgetting the author's name. Um, but it's a brand new. It just came out a couple years ago, a couple days ago, excuse me, and people are raving about it. It's sort of a uh, an apocalyptic book with lots of laughs. Um, I hear it's wonderful. I'm not selling it great, but check it out on Goodreads. Look it up. It, it looks amazing. So, Under Major Domo Minor, M Train, Fortune Smiles, or Station Eleven. Those are your four choices. Do some research. Let me know which one you're most into and write me at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com or write to me on Twitter, readingaloudpod. Or I made Cordry. Okay, enough. Enough. All right? I've had it. Let's talk to Dan. My guest today is a playwright and poet. His name is Dan O'Brien. Are you ready for this extensive introduction? I am ready. I wrote this by hand. Oh, my God. Because my computer died. I hope. I hope. It's so sad. I hope it's not accurate. Winner 
of the inaugural. Is this going to make you uncomfortable? Because this is going to take like probably, 30 minutes probably to will. do. Let's do, the, let's do the short version. Impossible. Winner of the inaugural Edward M. Kennedy Prize for Drama for his play The Body of an American, which premiered at uh, Portland Center Stage, had its European premiere in London at the Gate Theater and is coming to New York this winter through primary stages. He's also winner of the Horton Foot Prize for Outstanding New Play and the L. Weisberger Award, which is administered by the Williamstown Theater Festival. Is that true? It is, yeah. Or it used to be. Yeah. As of a few years ago. Shortlisted for the Evening Standard Award for Most Promising Playwright. And to top it all off, in 2015, he's a goddamn Guggenheim fellow. Mm. When did you hear, how does Dr. Guggenheim let the Guggenheimers, the fellows, the like club, yeah, phone call, text, email, email. email. Yep. What yep. is the subject of that email? Congratulations. It's, it's actually it was kind of a mysterious, stressful email because they say it says congratulations, but it says you haven't officially won. What? It says like you have to fill out a form specifying like how much money you want and what you would spend it on. Would they vet you at all or no? No. I mean, that's kind of what I found out. So, of course, when I got the first email, I was very excited. But then I was worried that, like, if I asked for too much money or Shit. totally, you know, was bullshitting that, that, that you know, I get another email in a month saying, sorry, you didn't make the final cut. Um, so, I, you know, I emailed a bunch of – a few writers I know that have, that have gotten Guggenheims and they all said, oh, it's, you know, it's pretty much a technicality. Okay. So, and then, but I was still nervous. Then I wrote to the guy, you know, whoever the, the um, you know, not Mr. Guggenheim, but but his, the guy who works for him. Associate and, adjunct professor yeah, Guggenheim. Yeah, because they, they also ask how much money you earn, you know, because oh. partly, I think it's because a lot of Guggenheims uh, are for academics. So a lot of people will, if they get a Guggenheim, they'll take a year off teaching. Right. So often, you know, they'll say, this is what I normally earn. At Santa Monica Community College, you know, um, and that might factor into how much money they give you. But it's a little bit stranger if you're an artist because you don't have a yeah. set salary. Uh, if you're a poet and playwright like me, you don't you don't have any salary for the most part. So you so you basically just ask for. So what I found out was I could just say hundred dollars. Yeah, I said give me hundred dollars <laughs> and, and, and validate validate my parking. Great. Um, and then and then about a month later, they yeah they say okay, you congratulations, you officially got it. So and was that an email or a phone call or that a, was an email too. Wow. Yeah. Very impersonal. The yeah. Guggenheim. I mean, they have a, they had a big uh, reception that I could that I didn't go to. I could have gone, I guess, if I. Cared. Flew myself out, um, but it was in New York in the fall. Every year, they have a big sort of welcome reception Holy for the shit. Guggenheimers. And are there f- former Guggenheimers? Yeah, yeah. I think they invite. I think every five years you're you're invited or something. So it's kind of like if you want, if you live in New York, or if you want to go, wow, and drink some some wine. Yeah, some I can't imagine the conversations at the Guggenheim Fellow um, cocktail know. hour. You know, I actually got. Because I know the other two playwrights who got it this year, there were three playwrights, which is actually more than often. There's mm. one or two, and uh, one one of them, Chris Diaz, Christopher Diaz, yeah, uh, is a huge fan of Earwolf. Oh, cool! And uh, and Womp It Up, Jessica St. Clair, my wife. Yes. Um, so so I got some texts from the Guggenheim. Uh, party sort of, um, you know, giving you an update, telling, like, telling me to womp it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Who is the other playwright? Uh, uh, Lucas Nath, Nath, how do you, uh, it's H-N-A-T-H. Okay. He's, uh, he's, he's younger. He's having, I mean, he's had a very busy career. He has a play, uh, called The Christians that's at Playwrights Horizons. Oh yeah, I've I think. heard of that. Yeah. It's either there right now or just finished, uh, and the Gate Theater who, who did a play of mine last season. Or, yeah. Or doing the same play this season in London. Fucking A. Yeah. So he's, he's cool. And he's got great hair. I've oh, cool. Great. Oh, um, I wish. Lustrous locks. I think about getting a wig. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dan's first poetry collection is called War Reporter, which came out in 2013. It was a staff pick for Best Books of 2013 on Slate.com. Your plays have been produced everywhere. Uh, second Stage, Ensemble Studio Theater, Humana Festival, Actors Theater, Louisville, O'Neill Center, Soho, Playhouse, Williamstown, etc. There's too many fellowships to list. That would take another 90 minutes. Princeton, University of Wisconsin, eat, Suwannee. You know. You're a grad of Middlebury College, and you got your master's from Brown in creative writing. Dan O'Brien, welcome to Reading Aloud. Thank you. Thank what's you your um, like? What's your favorite? What are your interests? Bes- I don't have I don't have fun for the most part. I don't have yeah. fun or hobbies. Podcasts. I am a big fan of podcasts. What's your favorite Earwolf podcast? We were talking about this before we started. I mean, I think I had to say Womp It Up. Sure. Uh, yeah, you know, probably the whole comedy bang bang universe. Yeah, absolutely. Anything with engineer Cody in it is uh, something that I'll pay attention to. Dan walked. There you go. Dan <laughs> walked into the the Earwolf Studios like a little boy walking into <laughs> FEO Schwartz for the first time, and then That's saw true. Cody and went, "Wait, you're engineer Cody?" Yeah, they're like, "This is Cody." Yeah. And, I, and it, it's the engineer, Cody. How it's often has that happened, Cody, that, that I guess will come in and be like, holy not shit. Not often enough. <laughs> <laughs> but you're such, you a, deserve, you're, you're such a mysterious but vital presence in so many of It's totally true. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Both you and Sam have the same thing and Brett. Yeah. They yeah. Have this, like, I mean, this, but me more than them. We, oh, of course. Oh, no. Please. I'll be bit. honest. Engineer Cody is like a name. St- yeah. St- has stuck in my head. Baba, baba, baba. Yeah. One, two, three, one, two. It might be more than just the name. No offense. Yeah. It's the handsome demeanor. Absolutely. With a specials T-shirt, the way you the work fucking colas. Uh, you are an anomaly, Dan, because you're like a working playwright and poet. How many of those are on planet Earth? There are. I don't think there are too many. Like I don't know. Too I can't many. think of any. Yeah, I think there are more because it's been interesting the last few years to feel like, um, to some degree, my poems and 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 uh, at least this one play has. Um, in some ways been more well received in the UK and I wonder and I think there might be more poet playwrights in the UK and I'm not sure if that's a cultural thing yeah. if it's uh, you know I have I have theories that I could bore you with but um, yeah there aren't too many I can't I'm trying to think I know of a few I guess Derek Walcott is like the, a very famous oh, yeah. playwright who also yeah. know, is, is known for writing poetry did uh, I mean, Tennessee Williams did a little bit yeah somewhat. right um what about um, uh, the guy who wrote um, Democracy? Um, not Democracy. Um, that's David Mamet. The guy who wrote um, very liberal. Um, David Hare? No. Um, God, he's recently passed away. He and Norman Mailer would go at it a bunch. Um, Gore Vidal. Oh, right. did what he was write his play um, poetry? I mean, he kind of wrote everything. Yeah, yeah. He just was like writer extraordinary. Right. Okay, right. but not necessarily. Did he die? I didn't even know he died. I think he died like last year or the year before. Oh, God. Maybe I'm crazy. Um, a little background on Dan. Um, this is the first time we've had like a proper poet here, and I'm so excited to like learn about poetry because I think along with a lot of my listeners, I know zero about it, and it's never properly moved me the way that it. I feel like good poetry, poetry should. So I'm excited to crack into your brain and learn about that. But a little background, Dan and I met at the Williamstown Theater Festival in 2001. It was his first play at Williamstown, um, Moving Picture, which was directed by Darko Trenziak, who now runs Hartford Stage and won the Tony last year for Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Uh, which won Best Play? Best Musical. Yeah, I think and it won, he won Best, best Director. Musical, yeah. 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 I, think um, it's touring. I think there's a touring production right now. Yeah, yeah. Amazing show. Yeah. And he's a... Very talented dude. Yeah. Um, but the show, Buy of American, is starting in Hartford. 
Yeah, it's a co-production with Hartford Stage. Okay. Uh, so it'll, it'll rehearse in New York. They're going to open in Hartford, and then the same production will come to New York. It'll actually, it's Primary Stages is producing it in New York, but they are uh, producing at the Cherry Lane Theater downtown. Right, yeah. So it's a little complicated, but uh, yeah. it's a great old, it's a, I think it's the oldest off-Broadway theater. It's a great One theater. of the oldest, yeah. Oh, please, Cherry Lane is amazing. And the play, you know, the play is meant to feel kind of intimate. I hope it can feel intimate for the audience. Yeah. And I think the Cherry Lane is is, is a good theater for that. It was originally, for sure. they were thinking about doing it on Theater Row, and I was a little nervous about it. I forget which it was, uh, right. the Kirk Theater or something. Okay, but, yeah. I feel like those theaters are, are a little more impersonal and kind of... Yeah, big boxes. You know, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm excited. We'll see. I'm as excited as, as I can allow myself to yeah, be. Yeah, I get it. Which is not very... Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> we met... I in, assume the worst. Um, <laughs> we met in a... Uh, like in an office at the Williamstown offices. This is in 2001. I came in and read for you and Darko, who's directing Moving mm-hmm. Picture. Mm-hmm. It's a brilliant play that Dan wrote um, that should be produced all the time. It's a fucking beautiful play about Thomas Edison and the invention of the moving picture camera. And you're shaking your head. Why are you shaking your head? Well, I was, I was just thinking, I mean, you were so good in it. I don't, you know, it's such a I was barely in it. I was in it for nine minutes. No, but you guys were, it was you and uh, Rob. I stole the fucking thing. Yeah, right. you guys, you did. <laughs> you did. You're like a little vaudeville duo. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, mean, I just Thompson. wrote it so long ago. It's, I'm shaking my head more out of that. Like if I had to actually read it or see it right now, I would probably. I would love to do that play and play, um, oh. I'm forgetting the character's name, the uh, the guy uh, who right. goes off. What is yeah, it? Yeah, uh, Dixon. Well, Dixon, Dixon, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, uh, he's maybe sort of, he's, he works now. for Thomas Edison, and the idea is he, uh, you know, it's 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 kind of a father son story set in the world of of the invention of the moving picture machine. Yeah, and uh, um, yeah, but it was just so long ago. Edward Moybridge was there. Moybridge. My, my I've bridge. never known how to say it's spelled Moy. Moy. Yeah, Moy Bridge. I think it was pronounced. Like he pronounced it Meyerbridge. Just, okay. just to be a pain in the ass. I think, right. And he invented the um, he, like that very famous of the yes. a horse mm-hmm. running. That mm-hmm. was his sort of invention. Right. Um, the play is fucking wonderful, and I had so much fun doing it. And I feel like the only one of the reasons I got that part is because I knew your wife Jessica, because we were interns together at the UCB. Like oh, in 2000. I, I didn't even remember that. We were like sell like for a couple weekend nights. We sold tickets together. Wow. And she was like, yeah, I went to college in Vermont. I was I like, I went to college that. in New Hampshire. We have something oh. in common. And oh, my boyfriend's a playwright. He's doing a play at Williamstown. I feel That's like so she funny. got me that job. I have no memory of her pulling any strings. Shit. Didn't you already know? I, I feel like you knew Darko or you had, you had been at I Williamstown. Knew, I knew Darko through Williamstown. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Because I, I, I remember you, you came very highly recommended to the auditions. Oh, that's good. And I said, this kid, this guy is going somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> this kid is going to make it. I did. I did. I mean, and you, and you have. You're, that's very you're generous so of you. so funny and good in that. The most recent play that, you've, that has come out and you've had so much success and has come to New York is called Body, The Body of an American. And in, you have a collaboration with Paul Watson. Um, who is Paul Watson and how did this collaboration come together? He, he's, uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, war reporter. He, uh, the, he won for a picture that some people – remember, but it's 20 years ago now, of a, a U.S. Army ranger who, who was dead being pulled through the streets of um, Mogadishu in 93, the Battle of Mogadishu, which was uh, the book Black Hawk Down and the film Black Hawk Down. So people at least usually have a general sense of that uh, that event, historical event. But he took this picture that um, was on the cover of Newsweek and Time and it won him a, the Pulitzer Prize that year. Uh, you know, I guess the the – the hook for me when I first heard about him, I heard him on uh, Fresh Air, uh, NPR, um, Fresh yeah. Air with Terry Gross, and 
some version of that interview is in the play and is to some degree in, in yeah. some of the poems I've written about him. Um, he, uh, while he was taking that picture, he heard a voice that he claims was is the voice of that dead soldier saying, if you do this, I will own you forever. And then he took the picture and he feels literally uh, haunted by this this uh, this soldier. So when I heard that, I mean, I think on one level, it's kind of a great ghost story. The fact that it's real uh, was was intriguing uh, too, but I didn't know him at all. And I just, um, you know, the play, I guess in some ways is like a deconstructed um, one person show for two people is how I've confusingly mm-hmm. described mm-hmm. it because it's very much about you know, there's a character. The two main characters are, are me and this Paul, Paul Watson guy. And the first half of the play is, you know, me reaching out to him and getting to know him. And then the second half uh, of the play is when we finally met face to face. When we spent about ten days um, in the Canadian Arctic, at the very top of Canada, so right where the Northwest Passage is now melted, you yeah. know, essentially. Um, and so the play itself is is the story of of our friendship, really. Right. So we went from being just kind of. Um, um, you know, uh, email pen pals, yeah, yeah. you know, um, which was interesting to me. But, it, it, you know, we did that for two years. How did it transition to a friendship where you're like, okay, I think this guy, we're friends now? That's a good question. I feel like in some ways we're closer now because this new book of poetry is, is still just a continuation of this of my story with him yeah this new collection new life and this yeah. and we're the guggenheim is actually to adapt that as a play so again so, so it started as a, as a play the body of american that sort of morphed into this poetry collection called war reporter and i kept writing pl- uh, poems about paul and that's new life which just came out last week and now we're adapting it into a play with center theater group here in la they're, they're commissioning it um to uh to be a play so you know somewhere in between Somewhere in the middle of all that, we started to feel like friends, I think. Yeah. And sort of, you know, I mean, we still don't talk very much, you know. We're just, right. We're, we're, uh, we're not guys, guys, but we're also not like, but we are, we sort of are in the sense that like, you know, we don't call and talk about our feelings or anything. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, yeah. But we email all the time and, and you know, at some point we just started referring to each other as, as friends. And Yeah. Uh, but I think putting together, because New Life is about his time in Syria uh, Paul's time covering Syria in 2013. Right. And then at the same time, it's about our, uh, really his dream to sell a, um, a American cable TV drama about journalists covering Syria. Yeah. And so he and I spent, and for some reason, you know, I was the closest thing he knew to a writer who lived in LA and uh, knew a few producers. So I agreed to <laughs> to try to put it together. I've never written for TV, never uh, pitched a TV series. This was Whoa. all new to me too. I mean, I've, I have the experience of, of seeing you know, my wife, Jessica, do it for years, pitching shows and, yeah. and then producing and acting in shows. Um, but so, you know, I was completely new to it too, but I was, um, interested enough to sort of explore the idea. So in putting together that pitch, we worked together a lot more closely and it, and I think that's when some of the friendship maybe yeah. developed. There's a poem in, in new life that's our, was our, uh, is our biggest argument, our big fight. Mm. Uh, I asked. I asked you to, to prepare, like, to- yeah. Well, I, I mean, we could read that. I was thinking that might be interesting, especially considering just the fact that we're in Hollywood and I'm talking to somebody who works in in show business, right, you know. Right. But I wonder if, if we could also read it. We could read it like a scene, yeah, if we want to, because the way the poem works is it's actually um, each sentence is is, is just 
ping-ponging back and forth between Dan and Paul. Mm. Um, so if that's not too much to throw at you. No, I'm, let's do it. Because I've read it a few times as a scene with other people. I the show is called Reading Aloud, so this is that's great. This that's fits perfectly. Uh, let's see, where is it? It's So that was our first big fight, and it's always uh, page 106. It's, it's always, um, I guess, that way in life, if you have a big argument and you survive, you're suddenly closer friends. But it was after we'd spent months and months putting together this pitch – Paul finally came to L.A. Now, he worked for 10 years for the L.A. Times, barely ever came to L.A. He was terrified of L.A. He'd come like – I think every year they had to come back for a weekend for what he called deprogramming because he was he was based for a while. He was the Southeast Bureau chief, so he was in Jakarta. Right. So uh, you know, this was a big, wow. exciting thing for him to come yeah. to Hollywood and, and pitch. Um, I was nervous too, but he had sort of – well, maybe we'll just read it and you can see. He had a yeah. certain um, – um, anxiety uh, about it, which I found ironic considering the terrifying things he's no lived shit. in his life. Yeah. You know? I should say, you know, he's been a war reporter for 30 years. He's been to, to most of the most, you know, horrible hotspots um, around oh the globe. Unbelievable. Um, so why don't I, just to confuse things, could I read Paul? Yes, of course. So this was called The War Reporter and the Poet Fight. I sense we've depressed them, Dan. Okay, Paul. This is Hollywood, so they're expecting bang-bang, combat sex. I know. Radio has this saying, listeners don't listen because they're too busy doing dishes or taking a shit. Okay. And by now, executives will be wondering if their wives are stooping the pool boys. Then what would you change? You've got to follow the way the distracted mind works. Okay. I fear, I hear like this circular saw in your driveway gnawing. Why don't we close the window then? You're an actor on stage whose audience will have stopped caring by now, Dan. I know what an audience wants, Paul. Somebody should kill somebody or... I'm not going to do a tap dance for them. Okay. I won't wear a lot of, I don't know, hats. Okay, Dan, but still you've got to surprise them. Let's try to get through this run through once, Paul, okay? Because I'm a good example of somebody who can't pay attention well. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel that your comments, Paul, okay. about our pitch have become kind of fear-based. But they are fear-based. Okay. My entire life is fear-based, Dan. And my approach is to repress fear, Paul. Okay, but just be ready when they get bored. The reason they'll get bored is because we can't get through like two minutes of this pitch without you stopping to give me fucking notes. I may be wrong, and if I am, well, sorry, but that reminds me, we need to inject more gallows humor into this. Our task is to focus here, Paul. Okay. Why don't we take a breather and drink a glass of water, or maybe something stronger? Oh, and also cut down your intro, Dan. I'm just being myself, Paul. Okay, but telling them you heard me on the radio? What? Why don't you say you had like the shotgun in your mouth and I made you weep or something? You didn't make me weep, though. What was the reason then you first reached out to me? You know. Tell me the reason. I've told you. But you've got to move me, Dan. You've got to move me too, Paul. Okay. And not and go off on these tangents. Okay. And you've got to keep track of time because you don't have a good sense of time. I get that. And please stop talking in like this shell-shocked monotone. I talk in a monotone? You see, this is what I didn't want to do. But this is how I talk, Dan. Okay. Well, why didn't you say so before? Because I didn't want to start but a fight. But if you tell me today, I won't be <laughs> Boring tomorrow. I am telling you now. Okay, but I wasn't getting it, Dan. Okay. I'm used to blunt co-workers. I was exaggerating because you pushed me. I need to be slapped around, Dan. Paul, I feel like I'm getting a lot of pressure no, here. No, no, no pressure for me. What's important is that we try to relax oh, okay. and stop being scared of scaring them. Okay. And that is why you shouldn't be reading these how-to books about Hollywood. You're right. I have been in my head, Dan. You're scared. And I shouldn't be reading that junk. It's junk. It's okay if you're scared. I am too. I've been searching for answers. But all we can do is say we have the story and do you want to help us sell it. Okay, Dan. Okay, Paul. Let's do this again. Okay. And this time, if I'm boring, I want you to hit me with the truth. 
So that gives great. you a little fucking sense. Fucking great. Of, I mean, it's what I mean. I should also say that most of these uh, poems are based on recordings. So yeah. he, he knew I was recording this whole conversation. Yeah. So then. You know, did would, you know that this was go- going to turn into a collection of poems about your I did, and I was very honest with it. I mean, I didn't know, you know, I hoped it would. Yeah. You know, I, I, that was sort of the plan because, again, I didn't think we would sell it, and and spoiler alert, we didn't sell it. <laughs> uh, so, so I had in my back pocket, okay, how can this be interesting to me creatively? You know, right. And that was, at that point, poems and thinking maybe even a play, and that's what, um, you know, eventually was my Guggenheim proposal, partly because I just feel like that's the way my brain works yeah. and also I was just being realistic that without you know some somebody with bigger you know clout as a TV producer writer uh, creator you know the chances of selling it were, were very slim right but Paul was very anxious and I you know part of it's not it's somewhat in that poem you know part of what I tried to get him to relax about was the fact that even if nobody buys this pitch it's not every day they get to talk to a Pulitzer Prize winning war reporter fuck yes you know so it's going to be an interesting meeting oh my god and and they all were you know I mean it was they were sometimes disturbing because you know he has significant PTSD so you know sometimes when he was talking about um, some of these issues he would have you know he he would do start crying or we'd have uh, you know very emotional moments in that PTSD way and which is not you know, it's, it's sort of like they go. I, don't, I mean, you, if you've probably talked or seen people that have PTSD, where sometimes the emotion just kind of washes over them in a way um, that's different. It's kind of eerie, I think. And so, it, you know, it created a very interesting piece of theater <laughs> to the pitches. Whoa! And, uh, and on one hand, he and I dreaded that because that takes a lot out of him and out yeah. of us. On the other hand, you know, after one meeting, he said, uh, and it's in one of the poems. There's a long poem where I just took all of the pitches, recordings of the pitches, and just tried to make one long poem. It's called The War Reporter and the Poet or something in the week of taking meetings, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, because he came from one meeting and said, you know, God, I you know, I feel bad that I cried or whatever, but I hope I do it tomorrow, you know, for the next pitch, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. so there's always this weird— What a strange thing to wrestle with. Yeah, and I, I love—I mean, that was interesting to me, that anxiety. Yeah, you know, about for it, sure. Because he does obviously want to— do something with his what he's um, something valuable with what he's uh, experienced in his life. Yeah. Without, while at the same time not wanting to exploit. Yeah. God, what a fine line. Jesus Christ, yeah. what a fine line. Yeah. Um, so, let's stay in the. Uh, I want to stay in the world of poetry. Sure. Um, I know nothing about poetry, yeah. as I've said, and have really. I haven't found poetry that has moved me. It's like a. a to me, it's a very quiet art, and it's very personal and mm-hmm. very. Um, like solitary, and I'm I'm wondering yeah. what motivated you to become a poet because I know you, like you were studying playwriting in school. Yes, is that what you sort of? I did. I mean, I went to grad school for uh, playwriting, but I, you know, I always wrote. I always wrote poems. I always wrote. You did uh, fiction, yeah. Okay, and uh, you know, I did. I guess I mean it's it's sort of part of what's interesting about being a a multi. Genre writer, or whatever. yeah, that sounds so pretentious. No, nope, it's a truth. Is that <laughs> is that you realize how much pressure there is to 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 spe- uh, sort of specialize? Yeah, you know, um, and I think, yeah, you know, getting into a grad school that was free, I and mean, that's one of the big reasons I went to grad school because I yeah. said, okay, well, I can write full time and I won't have to go into debt at the age of twenty three or whatever, yeah. you know. Um, and it happened to be playwriting, so I, you know, I did sort of get funneled down that. Um, mm-hmm. in that direction in mm-hmm. some way. And then once you get going, it's hard to, it, it, you know, it's like, uh, 
it's like Russell Crowe's music career. You know what I mean? It's like, it's hard to, <laughs> not to compare myself to Russell Crowe, but you know what I mean? Like, like it's hard to once, and, and I wasn't, I mean, it's not like I was famous as a playwright, but it is No, but hard. you were finding success. You were finding enormous success. It's not just, you, you just know people in that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. genre. So it's yeah. harder to sort the of. The train is on the playwriting right, track. Right. Yeah. And I still think, you know, to the degree that, so I would say about six or seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, I started to um, write more poetry and, and send, start to send it out to magazines and journals and things like yeah. that. And, and that was interesting because some editors, some uh, magazines were more, uh, were probably more excited to get something from a playwright because that was different. And mm. then of course, I'm sure there were many editors and journals that felt like, oh, he's not a real poet because he's a playwright, if that makes sense. Well, let's talk, I want to talk about the politics of that because yeah. you mentioned an email to me that some, some poets aren't, uh, well, I mean, that's probably, it could be mostly paranoia on my part. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can, I think, I think anybody, what's the issue? What are the politics behind it? They, they think you're a, you're coming in on their territory. Well, I think to some degree it, People are correct in the sense that, you know, like what we read is kind of like a little scene. So a lot of my poems read like dramatic monologues or maybe like dramatic dialogues. Oh. So there is a stylistic or aesthetic difference okay. from a lot of poetry. Right. I don't write – you know, it, it's it, it's kind of boring. But there are all these sort of camps. It's not boring. This is in the, very okay, interesting. Right, in the poetry world or just like there was in theater or other yeah. art forms. There are these sort of, you know, uh, aesthetic Camps, yeah, and, and for sure, I guess the the simplest uh, one would be something between formalist or neo formalist poetry, which is rhyme and meter, strict rhyme and meter, right? Uh, and something that feels more modern is usually considered free verse, you know. Okay, so you've got that distinction right there, and I, I'm certainly. And do they not, not like each other? Those camps, they generally don't. Right, like fucking the free verse, <laughs> yeah, fucking exactly. hippies, they write whatever exactly. they want. We follow the rules. We are the yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. I mean, you know, the, the journals that publish or the magazines that publish. Formalist verse tend to not, you know, publish as sort of free verse. Or um, there's a bit, there's a big distinction between performance poetry, which is I think sure, quite interesting. Right. You know, like right. like I don't know, like um, the Deaf Poetry Jam yeah, series, yeah. right on yeah. HBO. Is that it? Slam poetry, slam poetry, kind of slam. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. that's its own world. That's right. Very different from. I mean, the establishment poetry world is much more academic. People who get right. master's degrees go on to teach often teach college or university as a way to, to live. Because yeah. if there's one type of writing that, that um, will leave, make you, you know, leave you poorer than being a playwright is being a poet. I mean, you know, you, you publish, I think a poem in the New Yorker, you get $400 or something. That's it? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I In heard. the New Yorker? Yeah. You get no. 400 bucks. Something like that. Yeah. Most of the vast majority Christ. of journals and magazines, you just get a free copy. So if they, if they take your work. How, so how are you submitting your work to like literary journals? Is this like, do you have an agent who helps you or no, do you, just, you know these places because because you're in the know? Yeah, the more you do, I mean, the more, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say like seven or eight years ago when I hadn't been, you know, I was always writing poetry, but I wasn't paying too much attention to what was being published. Uh, you know, I did have to sort of get to know other journals yeah. uh, and magazines. And, but yeah, the more you, the more you read, the more you get to know some of the the editors or usually often writers. Yeah. Um, you could, you have a better sense of, of who might, uh, um, like your Dig work, your, respond yeah. to your work. Yeah. My next question is about, is like as, as a beginner and maybe a lot of my listeners may be beginners to poetry. No. Can you offer like some recommendations for accessible poetry for someone who's dipping their toe into that world? Um, either collections or certain writers that you loved, or maybe mm -hmm. you first sort of discovered um, mm -hmm. for some of the f some of us guppies. I have a picture because I don't really. I'm one of, I've brought a collection too of mine called Scarsdale, which is my confessional poetry uh, 
book that came out last year. Um, and that gets into the fact that I don't really have a family. So I don't, I don't have any pictures of the people I grew up with, but I do have a picture of Stanley Kunitz framed on our bookcase. Okay. Um, and we refer to Jessica and I refer to him as, um, as, a you know, Papa Kunitz. So he's, he, he's, he was much, he's dead now. He died in his nineties, not too long ago. Uh, I, I love his poetry. I mean, he's probably considered very accessible. He was mm. often in the New Yorker, not that that's good or bad. But, sure. Um, Stanley Kunitz. Stanley Kunitz. And, uh, uh, you know, I just always – part of it is that the myth about him was he would just spend all day gardening and then would maybe write a line or two, you know, every week. Holy shit. And, you know, he, he just had this kind of like zen, yeah. grandfatherly. Yeah, love it. But dark, you know, he's a real sort of – he had a dark childhood. I think his father killed himself and there's a very moving poem about – when he discovered um, in, in the attic of his – as a child, he discovered uh, I think in a trunk in the attic a picture of his father who he had never seen before and his mother like hit him or something. I mean it's, it's just – it's, it's, it's brutal. Holy uh, shit. That will turn you into a poet. You know, Fuck yeah. You know, if you find your dead father's picture in a trunk. <laughs> Where else would your dead father's yeah. picture be? I mean did, did your relationship with your family, does that inform a lot of your, your work? I don't see it here. Yeah. Because it's, it's more about Paul Watson. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much in New Life. In War Reporter, it's and and the play, The Body of an American, it's it's much more um, a part of the story. Yeah, you know, in the sense that when I first reached out to Paul, it was two thousand seven, mm-hmm. and the year before, my family had just kind of imploded, and I was basically disowned without any explanation, and I still haven't um, really received an explanation for it. So there's been a mystery sort of about that for me. I think in some ways it's a, just a mystery of uh, a very dysfunctional family because in some ways it wasn't a surprise. You know, my parents um, were disowning and estranging themselves from relatives as long as I knew them. It just really? sort of became my turn, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was a fairly traumatic time and that is when I started to write more poetry when I started the play is written in verse in a sort of uh, syllabic ten syllable line so good. you know it's not it's not um, iambic but it's a, a pentameter mm-hmm. and, and part of that is just sheer obsessive compulsive disorder I think people that are drawn to poetry and maybe writing in verse there's an I think all artists mm. tend to be perfectionists but I yeah. think Poets, especially, maybe maybe again, if you're writing plays and verse, you're going to have a real obsessive attention to detail. Yeah, you know, that yeah, you yeah. Probably have to enjoy, right? Which, which I do. You have to fit a lot of really delicate stuff in really tight right. places. Right. I'm seeing like a typesetter, like putting up the letters and uh-huh. like making sure it's all. Yeah, and I like, love what that does. Layout that does to it because, for example, with the play, uh, you know, I was overwhelmed by the sort of the scope or the breadth of Paul Watson's story. Um, it just felt overwhelming to me, you know, 30 years of war zones and how I was going to make a 90-minute play about this. So part of the 10-syllable line was um, something that helped me just constantly focus the material. Yeah. Just even line by line to make sure that every line did something new, at least for me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, God, what discipline. Jesus. Well, it's. I mean, it's. It's. it truly is OCD. I mean, it's, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, again, I'm functional. But, uh, you know, I, I qualify. I'm diagnosed obsessive yeah, yeah. compulsive disorder. And this right. is a way uh, – this is like a healthy, constructive yeah. way. Yeah. Relatively healthy, constructive way for me to sort of use those energies. You yeah. Know? Um, Did you discover that later in life or even as a child that you were really diagnosed? Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I didn't – I didn't actually got a diagnosis. Um Maybe maybe ten years ago, but yeah. it, but it started when I was a kid, and it was it was I mean the the diagnosis was sort of beside the point because I, you know I knew yeah yeah yeah, and I've I've written about it many times. I you know at, at twelve, uh, you know I was 
you know, a compulsive hand washer. I was yeah. uh, counting light switches on and yeah, off, yeah. You know, doing all those sort of ritualistic, superstitious things yeah. that people do um, that have that. And as an adult, those things kind of fell away. I think it just sort of uh, moved into the, the writing zone yeah. as a place where I could, um, you know, be a, a complete OCD freak. Right. So, um, yeah, so when, so when my family kind of, you know, fell apart that the, the poetry did come back so in terms of for me so in terms of like why poetry i mean it's interesting you said um you know how it's a very intimate form yeah a quiet form in a certain way and i completely agree and i think one reason why i came back i think for a lot of people who write poetry i think people who read poetry too it's often when shit really hits the fan you yeah know, that, that you sort of want to read a poem you know yeah you want to uh yeah why is that there's something about the form that's so much more raw. Yeah. Like you can, I mean, there are rules. I think so. I mean, I, but yeah. You also can use, you don't have to, I mean, that's the poetry that I love. I mean, when I was a kid, I loved Anne Sexton, even Sylvia Plath, Robert Lowell, you know, people that were considered confessionalist. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I feel similarly that, and I think much of modern American poetry, especially the more mainstream or accessible poetry tends to be confessional. Yeah. You know, you get the sense of a writer writing a poem about their life to some degree. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, there's lots of poetic traditions that don't really do that at all. And there's certainly people, contemporary American poets, that, that think very little of that type of poetry. They think mm. it's self-indulgent or it's, you know, part of the memoir culture yeah, of, yeah. of, of uh, anguish or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but – that's that's what moved me when I was a kid. You know, it was a very strange family, very you know dark, sad, abusive family. Yeah, and we never. Uh, it was yeah, also yeah. full of secrets, and so to read like an Anne Sexton poem, for example, which is you know set in suburbia, and she was a very tortured mm. person, but she mm. was very much writing about what seemed to be, you know, a, a suburban housewife's um, true yeah. expression yeah. of. What she was going. That's my favorite shit. Yeah, like digging into the. I've used this phrase so many times in the show, but like suburban milieu, like the fucking Mm -hmm. the dread of living in the suburbs and having to live that life and being unhappy and having to cover it up and looking all around you and beautiful streets and beautiful homes and you have a family and but underneath it all is like this fucking darkness and Mm -hmm. pain. And Tom Parada, in my opinion, does it for fiction. Does it really, really well. Mm -hmm. Um, Were you? Are you drawn to? You you must love O'Neill. Yes, I or was no, just. Or do you think it? Do you think it's too much? I was just rereading Long Day's Journey into Night this morning. <laughs> so. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Holy <laughs> shit! Okay, uh, I have an episode of this show you have to listen to because I, I became obsessed with that play a couple months ago. I was in a bit of a, a, a funk, and I was like, I was, and they were they're doing a big production in New York of mm-hmm. that play, and I was like. Oh, I want to see if I can, you know, get in on that. Mm-hmm. But they're, you know, they cast fucking Jake Gyllenhaal or something. Oh, right, right. So I was like, okay, that's not for me. Fucking Jake. <laughs> fucking classic Jake taking all my jobs, Jake. <laughs> and uh, I was like, all right, I can do one of two things. I can just not read the play and not get excited about it and just move on. Right. Or I can torture myself and read the play and fall in love with it again and watch the movie. So I reread the play, of course, and fell deeper in love with it and just beat myself up. And then started doing a lot of research on him and his life. Mm-hmm. And I had my buddy, have you met Steve? Steven Weber, have you ever crossed paths no, with him? No, I haven't. He's a good pal of mine, and he came in, and we talked, because he loves this fucking play, mm-hmm. too. And we talked about it at length, and then he read that cr- fucking beautiful monologue that the father, that, that Tyrone Sr. gives when, 
towards the end of the play, he's like, I could have been a great actor, right? but I'm a right. sellout and I yeah. fucked up. I just sold out. That's when, uh, uh, a Booth is watching him. Yes, perform. exactly. He's like, that's the greatest actor said, I've ever seen. That's the greatest actor, yeah. And but that's, that's, you know, that's Booth saying this. And it's so, I mean, it, that's the play maybe that made me want to be a playwright. I mean, mm. But I, and I saw. When did you first read it? I did. Or you saw know, it? I saw the film version, a Catherine Hepburn yeah. version. Uh, and I just remember, you know, it was, it was like a freshman college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Theater appreciation or something. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and we watched oh. it and everybody was so depressed. Oh, God. And I was in the best mood afterwards. Wow. I was like, this is the, I mean, it was, it's beautiful. Thank it's beautiful. you, O'Neill, well, for and fucking. Also, yeah, and yeah. it's so recognizable. And Yes. But I wonder, because I just saw a recent, a very good production at um, Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland. Oregon. Oh, yeah, yeah. They just did a, a production of it this year. I think it's still running in, in rep. So good, and I hadn't seen it live in you know fifteen years or something. Yeah, and um, I did wonder again. I, I was blown away by it, but I did wonder, like, how Irish you have to be to. Totally. <laughs> now, obviously, it's a classic, and not yeah. everybody who loves it and calls it a classic is Irish American. Yeah, but I was struck by how Irish American it is. I had a conversation with someone about trying to redo that play, but having an all having a, like a like a different. I mean. O'Neill will be rolling over in his grave, but have it cast with a new, like, contemporary immigrant family, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. a family from the Middle East, mm -hmm. you know, or someone who's been in West Africa and emigrates to the United States and is, like, second generation. And having that, or, like, someone should write that play and right. what it means to be, you know, living in this country, second generation in 2015, and having all, and having all, all the similar kind of pain mm -hmm, and drug mm -hmm. addiction and drunkenness and when the family just fucking falls apart. Yeah, and it is just oh my god, it's crazy that you mentioned that play of all plays. It's crazy you you mentioned it. You got I, I I'm I'm rereading it because I'm I'm also working right now on a kind of memoir about you know my my sad childhood. Yeah, um, and uh, so of course I went back to that play because I mean this is a play that he yeah obviously synthesized you know a lifetime's perspective on his yeah. childhood or his young adulthood uh, and made a single you know, very long play out of it, which is an amazing achievement. Did I mean, you, re did you see the, the PBS, like the master? Yeah. Oh mm -hmm. my fucking God. Yeah. His house is right outside of San Francisco. I've been meaning to go up there yeah. where he wrote mm -hmm. Long Day's Journey. He wrote um, Iceman Cometh there. He wrote mm -hmm. um, Moon from the Misbegotten. Um, the only guy to win four Pulitzer Prizes. <laughs> Crazy. Died yeah, in I mean, a hotel he doesn't, room Yeah, he doesn't sound... You know, it does sound like a very oh, difficult a, life. Oh my God! And I'm not. You know, the the one thing I hold against him, and I, maybe I shouldn't, is how he never spoke to his daughter again yeah. after she married um, was a Chaplin, chaplain. Right, chaplain yeah. yeah. But she was very young, wasn't that? Was a whole she story? Was, she was yeah. like 14 or something, right? And he was like 50. And yeah. the chaplain was. was uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm interested in the nuts and bolts uh -huh. of writing, like the actual, like the tangible. Where where does it happen, and when does it happen? And do you use a pencil, a pen, or do you use a computer? Do you go um, to a coffee shop or do you sit in your room? I, I tend to sit in my room yeah. for like the real writing. You have a Scotty sense. dog, right? You have a little I have a Schnauzer. Yeah, Schnauzer. Yeah. yeah. A little little Schnauzer who- um, What's his name? Her, her name is Emma. Right. Okay. It was actually the name of Jessica's character on Playing House. She named herself after our Schnauzer. Um, <laughs> I didn't so, know that. <laughs> yeah. Just a little little trivia for, yeah. for the fans. All those Playing House um, fans. Yeah, I mean, I tend to to write at home. You know, I, have you seen the Wonder Boys? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. And you know how how uh, what's his what's his name? Why Black Hand? Um, yes, Douglas. Mike du- Michael Douglas. Yeah. Mike, I call him Mike. Mikey uh, writes in his like <laughs> his wife's or his, his ex wife's yeah, bathrobe dra- or something. dress or house coat yeah, or something. I think yeah, it's a bathrobe. bathrobe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm kind of like that. I don't wear Jessica's clothes, but I do just you know I <laughs> I like to roll out of bed and just kind of write because before co- do you have coffee or yeah eat? Okay. I have too much. Too much coffee for sure. So you make coffee at home? Um, yeah, and I just write it at home for the Where? first few hours. Where do you I, write? I used to write in a separate room that's now the nursery. So that's right. that's. So I've been slowly getting pushed out of the house. Now I tend to write uh, in our bedroom, which is not ideal. Mm. In a chair. Um, in a chair, got a desk. And, and are you typing? Like, how is this? What are you I writing? I do with? both. I mean, a lot of uh, you know rough drafts. I'll I'll write longhand. Yeah. Uh, and wow. then once it's you know in the computer and once it's, you know, uh, then I tend to work with it that way. Yeah. And then as it gets closer to being finished, I, I print it out a lot. I probably kill a lot of trees and inhale a lot of toner because I need, <laughs> I just need to see the words on the page and then with a pen do things to it, you know, and then bring it back to the computer. So there's, there's huh. a kind of, right. But you don't start at the computer. Not usually sometimes, like sometimes there'll be, you know, a lot of these poems, at least that are the ones that are about Paul do come from either recordings and transcripts. So often I'll spend way too much time just, you know, typing up a transcript of a conversation we've yeah. had or something, and then I'll work with the text that way to okay. adapt it into a poem. Um, have, have there been other writers or like teachers or professors in your life that have given you like really good sort of nuts and bolts advice, like about how to physically write, where to go, like should there be a window? You know, not, I know. I mean, most of, not that I can recall. I mean, mostly I've, I've heard just to find what works for you. You know, right. just to find uh, something. You know, I had a professor in college used to write. He was a real coffee shop writer. You know, he loved mm. he loved that. And some writers love that. I I don't for the most part because I need to feel pretty anonymous. I mean, sometimes I find a coffee shop or somewhere where I can feel kind of left alone. But I don't like to. You know, I don't want people looking what I'm trying to write. You yeah, know, I yeah. don't want to go to especially if, if you're like somewhere in you know Hollywood or something. Everyone's writing a screenplay or a yeah. TV play or reading one. Right. Um, and that makes me self-conscious, you know. Fair so, enough. so no, I tend to write uh, at home, and the afternoon is for more business t- t- side of things. Yeah. You know, when it comes to writing, yeah. Um, you know, working out that sort of thing. I love this is horrible, but I'm a great cocktail hour writer. Yeah, uh, fuck <laughs> yeah. Like this coffee in the morning and great. cocktails at night. Nothing more romantic just, than a cocktail yeah, in your yeah. hand doing some writing. And uh, you know, but but just after like uh, you know, I, I run a fair amount. So after a long run, then you rehydrate with alcohol. Great. Do a little bit of writing. Yeah. And everything is great. Um, so I tend to have two chunks of the day where I can usually get a, a lot of writing done. Wow. But I'm a real, you know, I'm an obsessive reviser too. You know, that's, so I feel like I write all the time. I don't necessarily feel like I finish a lot of things, yeah. you know, in terms of like numbers of plays or numbers of right. collections or, or what have you. Do you have any interest in teaching or is that something that's not on your, on your I ha- map? I mean, I occasionally do. Like I've, I think last summer was my ninth year at the Sewanee Writers Conference, which is a two week conference mm. in Tennessee. Uh, it, it's uh, funded by Tennessee Williams' estate. So anytime you buy or even see a Tennessee Williams play, the royalties are going to this little wow. co- college in uh, Sewanee, Tennessee, the University of the South. It's yeah. Um, Paul so Vogel was uh... – She was there this year. They, we, the, it's a team teaching situation. So they, they usually have two writers that teach you know, a group of 15 or so. So badass. Um, wow. So she was there last year and she was probably, I guess, her biggest – name uh draw was she cool wow she's great yeah do you know her at all no never crossed yeah she was great i mean people are justifiably obsessed with her not just as a writer but as a teacher i mean she's a 
And she started the Brown program where I went to grad school, but she was not there. She had just won the Pulitzer Prize and left for two years. So I for never actually got to know her. How I Learned to Drive? For How I Learned to Drive, yeah. Holy so um, so I never actually spent time with her. So it was great to, to spend uh, 12 days there. So, I, you know, I teach there. Wow. I, did, I taught a few weeks at like Grinnell College last year. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to do something in Iowa. Great. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something in, uh, uh, at Johns Hopkins this spring. Oh, cool. Uh, in a similar sort of short workshop visit type thing. Yeah. Um, but I've, I, I, you know, I, I really enjoy it, but it's, again, it's that thing of, you know, it's to teach full time is a lot of yeah. time. It's yeah. a lot of time, a lot of energy. I did a lot of adjunct teaching when I was in New York because I lived in New York. We lived in New York for 10 years or so. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of, you know, talk about what, what a, the New Yorker pays you for a poem. I mean, adjunct teaching, creative writing is, is nothing. Where are you teaching? Where did I teach adjunct? Uh, SUNY uh, Purchase College. Oh, yeah, yeah. Total there. Um, Great Princeton. I eventually did a fellowship at Princeton, but then I, before that, a few years before, I'd done, taught a class there. So, that, you know, um, I'm trying to think other sort of one off. Were you commuting to like Princeton that. like twice a week to teach? Yeah. yeah. Jesus I know, Christ. Long, I know. Actually, when I, and then when I lived at Princeton, I was teaching at Princeton once a week, but then I was teaching at Purchase College. Which is north of the so city, commuting. So, which is, so it was like a two-hour drive each way because oh I was God. living in Princeton, driving to purchase. Um, so then, when I moved out here, it, partly it was moving out here and getting a little bit more work as a playwright and not needing as much to teach. Yeah, but it's also getting out here and not knowing anybody. Yeah, you know, like everything, if you, it's harder to get those teaching jobs if you don't have personal relationships. With, of course, with people. Um, so yeah, since moving, since living in LA, I really I have only taught at Suwanee. Or the occasional yeah uh, workshop here and there. Can we f- can we finish today with you reading another piece? Sure. Can you? Yeah, uh, yeah. I would love to close out with it. I wonder if maybe there's of a, your selection. Yeah. Um, Have you found the go to? I mean, I know it just came out, but is there? It is. Do so you have new. the go to? Like I'm in a bookstore and I have to do a reading, so this is my. You know, I've only read because I, I I read a few in London a few months ago. And that was completely new. I mean, these are very new. In some ways, we the book came out in a somewhat rushed um, fashion because because of what it's about. Do you know what I mean? The yeah, fact yeah. that so many of the poems are set in Syria, about Paul's experience in Syria. You know, I, and, and now it's already two years old. Not that the war is two years old, but his his time there. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's 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 really very new. But let me think of a good one. I know I should have already thought about this. No, no, no. It came Please, out. it's fine. You find whichever one that um, moves How you. about? This won a little prize in the UK. Fuck yeah. So I'll read it. This is called The War Reporter Paul Watson on the Devourer of Hearts. He opens the body in a crater of earth and rubble, with dirt the color of menstrual blood, hacking like a husband barbecuing, gouging a fish's mouth into the pallid breast through which he plucks a heart and lays it on a plank across the corpse's solar plexus. You're carving him a valentine, laughs the cameraman, perhaps. Embarrassed birdsong, light shredding of human meat, gristle flicking. He lifts the heart with knife in hand. The other hand scoops up a hunk of lung. We will devour your hearts and livers, you mercenaries of Bashar the dog. Then ritually choose into flesh that breathed, not heart or liver, as reported. The video seizes with that bite like a kiss. Alwa Akbar, voices had been shouting. God is greater than whom? 
we'd do well to ask. Just a man from Holmes, who before the spring sold lamb's meat in the streets, teased olive branches beneath the noses of Bashar's dogs. A woman and child chanting two shots, his brother stooped to help, through the neck, he bled out next, more friends and a lover lost. The police called him on his cell so he could feel the sound of his parents beaten. And remember, that loyalist carried a video in his phone, girls made to watch their mother raped with sticks. When their turns came, then all stabbed as if clinically, you weren't bothered by any of that. Why not? Picture yourself in my shoes, he says. Like I told the ghost of that American soldier years ago in Mogadishu, I didn't want to do this. I had to do this. It is true, I have changed. I have become the angel of death, he says, here to devour the hearts of men like beasts. Just oh, a real shit. uplifting one. Uh, <laughs> does he? Does this stuff just? Do these stories just kind of pour out of him, and do you have to dig? No, they do. I, yeah, they do. It's interesting to me when and how they come out. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. he's not, and and he has a certain um, self consciousness about them. I think he thinks he was very nervous with these pitches that he didn't want to overwhelm people. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think sometimes he. Because he f- he feels um, it so deeply, he sort of overestimates how traumatizing it'll be to people. Oh, I mean, it's God. traumatizing to people to hear it, but because he's witnessed so many of these these stories, I mean, that's interesting because that's actually not a story that he directly witnessed. So with this this collection, you know, I felt because I know Paul better, I, I felt okay um, taking a bit more poetic license for what maybe he directly yeah. didn't witness if that makes sense yeah. he can be more of a archetype in some ways um, what a spectacular collaboration Dan it's, I mean it's meant a lot it's meant a huge amount to me I mean I, you know seven or eight years ago when everything kind of went crazy in my life I did feel like I wanted to write things that would be mostly valuable in terms of what it did for me um, in terms of relationships my life yeah and that the work would be secondary if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if it turns into an okay oh, book, yeah. that's great. If it turns into an okay play, that's great. But but I'm much more interested in, you know, who is it going to bring me into contact with? Totally. How is it going to change, you know, something about my life, if, if it can. Dan O'Brien has been my guest. He's a poet and playwright. Where can people see The Body of an American? They can see it. It'll open in Hartford in January, and then it comes to New York in February, early February. And then there's separate productions uh, Theater J in Washington, D.C. is doing a production in April, I believe. And Stage Left Theater in Chicago is doing production also, I think, in April. So if anybody's near those two, um, please come see it. And the and the new book, A Poem, is available. You can go to my website, danobryan.org. Yeah, well, how can they find links. it? Yeah, it's okay. got links to it. I mean, you can get it on Amazon, too. It's probably better if you go through my website because then you can get it from the publisher direct who's a – um, you know, a small publisher in London, so yeah. it'd be better for him. And where can they better. find you online? They want to find your stuff. You're, uh, yeah, you're on t- Twitter as well. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, yeah, pretty much just Twitter on my website is the best option. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank for you. Coming Thanks in. for letting what a me. Fucking great conversation. Read some disturbing. Uh, I'm into it. Poetry. Big time. All right. Good. And you get to meet Cody the engineer. Cody the engineer. Say something, Cody. Up. Come on, please. Thank you very much. Okay. Good. <laughs> We've moved on to the final part of this week's episode. Um, every year, 826 National, which is Dave Edgar's foundation, I think, um, puts out a bunch of uh, best American books, like best American mystery stories, best American uh, uh, essays, best American magazine writing. Um, it's 
it's sort of like my go-to spot. Um, and the best American non-required reading um, is assembled by um, a group of high school students that meet at a publishing house in San Francisco every Monday night. Um, and there is a bunch of people in a bunch of students in Ann Arbor that do the same thing. Uh, a bunch of high school kids who are into reading and writing get together. They go through everything, and then they select like 20 pieces to go in these collections. I found so much stuff for this show from the Best American Non-Required Reading uh, books. This, the next, the, this newest one is edited by Adam Johnson, um, and this is a story called Things You're Not, Not Proud Of by Tom McAllister. It's great. I read this book from cover to cover, and this is a story that really popped for me. And that's saying something, considering he's in really exclusive company. Um, So this is Tom McAllister's Things You're Not Proud Of, as read by myself. Are there people living inside our pipes? My wife asks. Of course there are not people living inside our pipes, I say. But of course there are people living inside our pipes. Where does she expect them to stay? A hotel? The thing she has never understood, will clearly never understand, is this. Real estate. Capital. Supply. Demand. It's the reality of the world. Homes are not affordable. Banks are broken, so you move into somebody's pipes if you have to move into somebody's pipes. It's, it's happening everywhere. They're not proud of it, but life is full of things you're not proud of. She tells me to Drano the pipes, so I ask her if she's okay with the moral implications of massacring the people inside the pipes just because she doesn't like undrained water rising above her ankles when she showers. I thought you said nobody lived in there, she says. They don't, I say. While she's out buying the Drano, I'm lying face down in the tub, warning the people in the pipes. She doesn't know them like I do, doesn't respect them, but... I understand where she's coming from. The tub drains too slowly. They pose legitimate health and safety hazards. It has to be against the health code to have people living in there with their back hair and fluids and communicable diseases. The chaos of their conversations rattles within the pipes, and when they shout at one another about money, the walls hum and clang. They claim they can't see our bodies when we're showering, but... I suspect they can see our bodies when we're showering. So I get it. I do. Still, and also, I am not enthused about killing them just because their existence is a little inconvenient to my own. They think I'm bluffing. They say, you don't have the guts. They say, could you stop peeing in the shower? I say, if you're going to stay here, we need to establish some ground rules. I am still in the tub. When she returns from the hardware store, I'm still working out a verbal contract with the people in the pipes. Negotiations have been arduous. They won't even make simple concessions, i.e., they won't tell me how many people are in there, let alone agree to stop inviting friends over for parties. Listen, I said, she's home, and I'm the only one who can stop her from killing you. This isn't right, the patriarch says. He says, threats of violence... What happened to good-faith negotiations? What happened to constitutional rights? Deeper in the pipes, there was a flush of applause. He says, I'm sending an email to my congressman. I didn't even know they had internet access in there. My wife is downstairs mixing something in a bucket. 
Two parts water, three parts mysterious powder, one part frustration. The mixture seems to be thickening because she needs two hands to twist an old paint stirrer through it, and she's hunkering to generate torque with her midsection and to power through with the legs. Her back is turned to me, and I think about making some kind of joke about witches and cauldrons, but I can't quite come up with the right phrasing, and anyway, she does not like jokes at her expense, not even flirty ones. We are both in our kitchen, which is fully upgraded and has new granite counters and custom cabinets and a heated tile floor and recessed lighting and everything else you're supposed to have, according to the people on TV. When you don't have children to pay for, you can afford the so-called finer things in life. The plan was to have three children. It would go like this, girl, boy, boy. And their names would all begin with the letter B, because my wife read on the internet that B is a letter of strength. It is a structurally sound letter that would equip them for handling the daily grind. But the plan was flawed, because you cannot make your bodies do what you want them to do on cue. You cannot predict that you will have faulty equipment incapable of impregnating your wife. We financed the kitchen upgrades with money that had been earmarked for Barbara's college fund the same way Buster's summer camp money had paid for our bathroom remodel, and Blake's sports equipment and travel budget had been diverted to pay for last year's seven-day, six-night, three-fight Caribbean cruise. She was wearing a tank top, and her shoulders are more muscular than I remember. She seems to be calling on a younger version of herself to aid in the stirring, and I am moved, mindlessly, to sneak up behind her and grab onto her hips, kiss her behind her ear, tease her bra strap out of place with my teeth. She shrugs me away. I'm stirring. Can't you see I'm stirring? I can see it. I just thought she looked good. Felt myself flashing back to weekends 15 years ago, afternoons when she casually walked around the house nude and we cooked meals as a team and made plans with friends just so that later we could break them and spend the time together. Now we order Chinese. Now I have guys' nights and she has girls' weekends. Now she wears socks to bed so I can't see her toes. Now I spend nights sitting in the bathtub and talking to the people who live in my pipes. She hands me the bucket and says, Keep stirring. The man at the hardware store, his name was Timothy, she tells me, even though I don't care what his name is, or that the letter T is a bridge-building letter, which means he's skilled at connecting with people, was very helpful. He was waiting at the front door, and when he asked her if he could help her with anything, she told him she needed all the help she could get. My wife says he took her hands in his and looked her in the eyes in a really serious way, like a hypnotist or a furniture salesman, and he told her he had exactly what she needed. He led her to the storage room in the back to show her something special. I don't like where this is going. I say, which is meant to be kind of a lascivious joke. Okay, anyway, she says, he takes me back there, and he pulls down a box from the top shelf that says, do not open. It's an elixir, Timothy told her, banned in the U.S. because of some bureaucratic nonsense, accidentally shipped to this hardware store instead of some toy factory in China. What does the elixir do? It does everything. It solves problems. It's like having a mom you can call on any time of day. Why do you think Chinese people are so happy, she says, Timothy said. Why do you think they've advanced so far beyond us? 
What Timothy told her was we could use it on the drain, but we wouldn't be exploiting its full potential. We're supposed to apply it to any problem area, two coats, if necessary. I ask her if she's sure this is a good idea. Isn't it maybe possible that this is a dangerous thing to do? And what if we get a second opinion from another person at a different hardware store or a doctor even? One of us needs to be willing to solve problems, she says. One of us needs to be a doer. It's true. She's the doer, and I'm the reactor. Like when that swampy smell creeped up from the basement, and I told her it's just what happens to older houses. They start to smell, but she called in the building inspector, and they found all that mold in the walls. Or like the time the sinkhole formed in our backyard, and she wanted me to fill it, but I didn't fill it because it seemed like backbreaking work, and... Anyway, the new dirt were just going to sink too, so why delay the inevitable? But she called in a guy. She always wants to call a guy, and I have to admit the guy usually knows how to fix things. It seems to me that as long as things get fixed, it doesn't much matter who gets the credit for the fixing, but my wife does not agree. When she wants something done badly enough, she is a missile bearing down on an insurgent. She is momentum personified. What if one of us needs to be a not-doer, I say? What if the thing to do sometimes is to not do anything? You've tried not doing anything for five years, she says. There's nothing noble about moping around the house and wondering what happened to us. Sometimes you just need to hammer a nail a little harder. You need to tighten the screw. She dips a finger in the bucket then swipes it across my gum line, says it ought to fix my crooked incisor, and maybe it will make my jokes funnier. Texture of a pulverized crayon, taste of an overripe orange. My jokes are equally as funny as they were 15 years ago when she thought they were plenty funny. I want that on the record. I dab some of the paste on her chin, where she seems to have given up the fight against her persistent sprouting hairs. I rub some into her ears, so maybe she'll become a more generous listener. She shoves her index finger up my nose to stop my snoring. What happened with the Drano, I ask, her finger still in my nose. My mouth feels alien, and my voice is distant, like I'm hearing an actor on a TV in another room. I forgot about the Drano, she says. She forgot about the Drano. There is a sound like cheering in the ceiling above us. Two days later, the elixir is half gone, and we are both covered head to toe in a turgid paste. She is nude, and I am nude, both of us spectral in the glowing whiteness of the elixir, my joints feeling like a 20-year-old's joints, not my 20-year-old self, but some other better 20-year-old, a, a high jumper who can squat 250 and who never wakes up in the middle of the night with cramps in his legs. It's easier to feel optimistic when your body feels so charged with possibilities. When you hit a certain age, you have to focus on just staying awake all day, and, and you don't have time to work on marriage anymore. You, you want the marriage to work on itself. When we met, it was because the algorithms on a website determined that we were a good match. She wanted a man who didn't drink and who ran 5Ks on weekends and who had a well-kempt beard in perfect vision and a decent job with potential for promotion, and the know-how to make minor home repairs. And I wanted a woman who wanted a man like me. And the website delivered me to her. Computers are amazing, but they cannot predict everything. There is no way it could predict that I would have faulty equipment, or that I would hate spending time with her family, or 
that if I spent a couple of hours in the morning browsing porn sites, she would want to call it an addiction. The computer never would have known that even though we had fun on dates and we had the same taste in music and held roughly similar religious views, that we were not cut out for living together. Couldn't predict how quickly we would discover all the ways to irritate each other day to day and wear each other down to raw nerve endings that could be inflamed by even the slightest misstep. Couples counseling didn't work for me. Eventually it turned into solo counseling for her every Monday and Wednesday evening. My wife's eyes are psychedelically charged, changing color from blue to green to a deep orange like a tabby. Her laugh is sharper and more crystalline. Her voice sounds luxurious but accessible like a wind chime made of rare sea glass. She grabs a handful of the elixir and rubs it all over my groin and my faulty equipment, and immediately I can feel myself producing vibrant, potent semen, a vision millions of bee-named children swelling inside of me, begging to be released. We call out of work and pull the curtains and do things to each other's bodies that we have never done. And she says she already feels like she is pregnant, already feels like a mother, triplets inside of her growing. The next day, we are already running low on the compound, but we still have enough to keep us going. We hold hands because we want to, not because we need to put on a show for everyone at the company picnic. Her heart thumps against her ribs, and we hear it like a bass drum. I tell her we ought to trade hearts, put mine in hers, and hers in me, see what happens. She says okay, but later, and then she says as long as we feel like we're 20, we should do what 20-year-olds do. She says we were both so much better before. And I look at her and I realize how sad she is to be getting old. I see how hard it is on her to be this deep into a life she doesn't want. So I agree with her. Let's be 20. Acting like a 20-year-old means being reckless. It means feeling no pain, ever. It means being oblivious to both past and future. We put on clothes and we go for a run beyond our suburban development and alongside traffic and through woods as far and as fast as we can go until we are lost, but we are not afraid. She climbs a tree and says she's a squirrel and wants me to chase her, so I chase her from tree to tree. We don't get home until early morning because we spend hours wandering the woods and then we hitch with a man who looks like his side job is modeling for wanted posters. We sneak in through the bedroom window. I give her a boost, and then she lowers the fire ladder for me to climb up. It's as if we are young and our old beaten selves or our parents waiting for us in the living room. She shushes me, and I shush her. And in the back of our bedroom, we both see everything so clearly it's blinding. On the fifth day, there is no more elixir and the paste is flaking off our bodies. My eyes feel heavy like ball bearings, and my throat sometimes closes involuntarily, forces me to consciously attend to my own breathing. My wife checks her pulse every 10 minutes, says she feels like a bird, hollow-boned and graceful. She rubs her belly now and then, the absent-minded way an expectant mother is supposed to do. She presses my hand against her so that together we can feel the kicking of the triplets she is incubating. There wasn't the plan exactly, but it's better than having no plan at all, she says. 
The people inside the pipes seem to be having a party, the pipes groaning and whistling urgently, the house clattering like an overworked radiator. On the sixth day, she rolls out of bed, spends a long time in the bathroom. I watch her still shadow beneath the door. She turns on the exhaust so I can't hear her crying, an old trick. My body is turning 43 again. I feel growing pains like I've never felt before. The door swings open and she emerges slowly. Her eyes are swollen and her mouth looks like a collapsed bridge. I got my period, she says. Even in the pipes, there is silence. My tongue tingles. My hearing is alarmingly acute, but otherwise I am back to normal, which is to say I'm worse off than I was a week ago because I tasted the good life and lost it. We both go back to work on Monday and we revert to watching television quietly next to each other on the couch. We order Chinese for dinner and eat leftover for four days. At night, I lie in the tub and talk to the people in the pipes. They seem happy, relatively. They seem settled. They're developing a small business in there, removing unwanted body hairs from other people's homes' pipes, and they don't think there is any reason to ever return to the surface. They say it was bad at first, but... The fresh start has rejuvenated them. I ask if maybe I can come down and visit sometimes. This isn't a tourist resort, the patriarch says. This is our home. My wife wants to know who I'm talking to at night. She says she can hear me, says I should level with her and tell her if I'm having an affair. I tell her I must be talking in my sleep. But you're not in bed, she says. I'm thinking of moving into the pipes, I say. She goes to the hardware store that weekend, saying as she leaves, I am going to fix this thing. Because divorce is not in her plan. Having a husband in the pipes is not in her plan. The elixir will get us back on track. She will buy enough to last as long as we need to feel something other than what we feel. When she comes home, she tells me Timothy is gone. Nobody knows what happened to him. Nobody has ever heard of the mystery elixir. She removes a bottle of extra-strength Drano from her bag. The label says, eliminates even the toughest clogs. And there is a picture of an anthropomorphized clog, a mucousy, sinister knot of sludge and grime, screaming in terror as the patented formula advances on it. She says, if you can't take care of the problem, then I will. I chase her up the stairs, but what am I going to do, tackle her? I'm not going to tackle my wife. I don't want to hurt her. I don't hate her. I just also don't love her. She pours the entire bottle into the tub's drain, even though the label says a half bottle will do the job. The liquid is silver like mercury, glugs out of the bottle with drunken hiccups. The label says to allow 30 minutes for the liquid to penetrate the obstruction, and I envision it creeping like lava through the homes of my friends in the pipes, drowning them, igniting their lungs, and chewing through their intestines. My wife and I sit beside each other in the tub's edge for a half hour, listening to a shrieking like failing breaks. She won't let me leave, says I need to hear this. And I tell her she is a monster. Ask how could you do this to anyone, let alone the harmless people in the pipes? I turn on the faucet, but that seems to expedite the process, the echoing gurgling screams more frantic than ever. 
My wife sits behind me sweating, crying onto my shoulder, decade-old tears welling up from her, and I think, I should be in there too. Even as they're dying, I want to crawl down inside with them to feel the burn of my skin, to feel myself purged, to be propelled through fevered heat and anguish and terror into whatever lies on the other side. Big thanks to Tom McAllister. Um, Thank you so much for allowing me to read your story. It's called Things You're Not Proud Of, and it's in the newest uh, Best American Non-Required Reading collection, the 2015 version, uh, which is edited uh, by Adam Johnson, who wrote The Orphan Master's Son. Um, And it's this story I just love. And you should pick up this collection as well. All of their collections every year are sort of my... I don't know. It's like my go-to spot. I know I'm such a sucker for Dave Eggers, but for good reason. He makes really good stuff. Um, I don't know. They have these really great spots that promote youth literacy all over the country. There's one in New York. There's one in Chicago, in Ann Arbor, in L.A., in Boston, in D.C. Um, And he's just the best. So go buy his stuff. Give him your money. Again, thank you to Tom McAllister. And thanks, big thanks to Dan O'Brien for coming in and talking about poetry and being a playwright and uh, being a cool creative artist. Check out his stuff. Find him online. Um, he's fantastic. Uh, go pick up uh, The Haunting of Hill House, Shirley Jackson, and I want your votes. Let me know what you want us to read for next month's book club. Under Major Domo Minor, M Train, Fortune Smiles, or Station Eleven. It's up to you. Uh, write me at Reading Loud Pod uh, on Twitter or Reading Loud Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Nate Cordry. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with a book club. We'll see you soon. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Hi, I'm Kevin Avery, and I'll bet the Earwolf or Wolf Pop podcast you just enjoyed was funny or entertaining or informative, probably all three of those things. But did they mention, at any point, two-time Oscar-winning actor, director, and philanthropist Denzel Washington? If not, then what are you doing with your life? You deserve only the greatest, which is why you should be listening to Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period. It's the show where my good friend W. Kamau Bell and I discuss and review every Denzel Washington movie, deliver the latest Denzel news, and even break down the state of diversity in Hollywood, all while joined by awesome guests like Vernon Reed from Living Color, uh, comedian Phoebe Robinson, and director Ava DuVernay. Here's just a taste. Who's a black actress uh, in movies right now? There's a lot on TV. There's Taraji and Gabrielle and Carrie, but I feel like there's no black woman in film. Unless you want to play a superhero or a woman who goes, baby, where you going? Then there's not much left for you. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Baby, where you going? (laughs) Baby, I gots to go. Uh, (laughs) Baby, where you going? That's the... (laughs) That was a whole scene. it's It's a play I'm writing... For more like that, tune into the greatest podcast to ever discuss the greatest actor of all time, period. Listen to W. Kamau Bell and I discuss Denzel on iTunes, Wolfpop.com, Howl, or your favorite podcast app. Pop. 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 Pop.
This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.